بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي امري واحلل عقده من لساني يفقهوا قولي اما بعد الحمد لله I don't know what number this lesson is does anyone know this seven So we're on page 61, and 61 is titled, this chapter is titled, The Ethereal Realities in the Physical Attributes of the Prophet So what does this word ethereal mean? Unique, subtle, lataif, yeah. So you, you could say this means, if, if we were to translate this into Arabic, because sometimes translating it into Arabic gives it more clarity, you would say this is al-ma'ani al-latifa fi awsafihi al-khalqiyya, right? The ethereal realities in the physical attributes of the Prophet Now, this chapter is presenting the aspects of the Shema'il and their connection to his lofty qualities and gifts that Allah gave him, miraculous gifts. It connects the physical attributes with certain ma'ani, meanings in character and in excellence. Now that will be clear as we read the examples he gives, but he begins with something of an introduction. And this introduction, I want to spend a little bit of time on because it sets the stage for everything else. And that is how we understand the bashariya or the humanness or humanity of the Prophet So the Shaykh says in the beginning, many believe that the Prophets regarding their states bear resemblance to the rest of mankind. They share the general human traits with everyone else and Allah instructed the noble Prophet to say, Qul ana Say, I am only a man like you. This verse became the yardstick which emphasized that prophets are mere human beings. However, if one were to form this belief as their foundation, many problems arise. It casts doubts into their significance and distinction and Allah's choice of them as leaders over the rest of mankind. Likewise, it puts their leadership into question, which would lead to reservation and uncertainty regarding the divine message. We must therefore analyze this concept using the Quran and Hadith as our main sources. For the sake of clarity, we have divided this into two parts. The first part will examine the leadership of the prophets, and the second part will explore their characteristics. So what he's getting at is the need to have a proper understanding of the verses in the Quran where Allah Ta'ala affirms the humanity of the Prophet where he says, for instance, قُلْ إِنَّمَا أَنَا بَشْرٌ مِثْلُكُمْ Say, I am only a human like you. How do we understand those verses in light of the other verses as well as the hadith which speak about the uniquities, the khasais, the special things Allah gave His beloved sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. How do we understand these? We have to put them together because you cannot have one while ignoring the other. You cannot affirm one at the expense of the other. You have to put them together and understand 
how they are taken holistically and why so many times Allah Ta'ala reveals in the Qur'an say I am a human like you what is, what is the significance of that command and how do we understand that in light of the previous nations saying the same thing to their own prophets so to give a good introduction to this I wanted to go outside of the book a little bit and because there's a really beautiful section that talks just about this in a work by the late Sheikh Muhammad bin Alawi al-Alawi al-Madiki Sheikh Muhammad bin Alawi al-Madiki was a very famous scholar of hadith in Mecca al-Mukarrama and he used to teach at the Haram and his father uh, was one of the biggest mashayikh, the biggest scholars of Mecca during the early period so in the 1980s he wrote a book called Mafahim Yajibu An Tusahah or notions that must be corrected and alhamdulillah Allah honored me to translate this book back in 2007 2008 and it's gone through a couple of different editions so uh, I began it in 2006 then finished it in around 2008 and this is probably my first, not actually my first translation, but probably the first published one. So in page 34 of this book, where he's trying to address different mistaken notions that people have about all sorts of different issues, areas of controversy. He has a section titled, The Station of Creation. That's the, that's the title. And in Maqam al-Khalq. He says, regarding the Prophet Muhammad Indeed, we believe that he is a human and that it is possible for him, as it is possible for other humans, to have incidental qualities and sicknesses that do not necessitate deficiency or turning people away with aversion. That's the basic point of aqidah, isn't it? We studied that in the foundations of certitude that what is possible for the prophets and messengers is to have qualities that are yeah we call them incidental human qualities getting sick being hungry being thirsty getting injured uh, being killed in battle or dying of quote-unquote natural causes uh, feeling pain uh, all of these are incidental normal human qualities that do not detract from the message or create an aversion between them and the people where they can't receive the message. That's a basic of aqidah. He says, we also believe that he is an abd. He is a slave, a servant. He does not possess any harm, benefit, power over death, life or resurrection, except as Allah wills. As Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, say, I possess no power of benefit or hurt to myself except as Allah wills. He goes on to say, We believe that he has conveyed the message, fulfilled the trust, advised the ummah, removed distress, and waged jihad in the path of Allah until Allah brought certainty to him, meaning until he left this world. He said, Slavehood, ubudiyah, is the noblest quality. This is why he took honor in it and said, Innama an abd, I am but a slave. And Allah describes him with slavehood in the highest station when he said, Subhanalladhi asra bi abdihi laylan min al masjid al harami ila al masjid al aqsa. Glorified is the one who took his abd on the night journey. And he says his humanity. Now we're getting to the crux of the issue. His bashariya, his humanity, was the essence of his wondrous nature, for he was a human from the human family, yet he was distinguished from them by qualities which no one else can equal him or compare to him. As he said concerning himself in the hadith, I am not like you, I spend my night with my Lord and He feeds me and gives me drink. 
Right, so that's in the hadith about the wisad, you know, fasting continuously. Uh, so it's the person, they say they take suhoor on a Monday morning and they take uh, iftar Wednesday night or Thursday night. They go multiple days without actually doing the iftar. That's a kind of fast called wisal. And when some of the sahaba were imitating the prophet doing this, he told them, you're not able to do this because Allah Ta'ala sustains him in a miraculous way that is not given to others. That's why he's able to do it. He says, uh, this is the crux of the issue. Having said all of this, it's clear that describing him with human qualities must also be juxtaposed with describing him with the qualities that distinguish him from the rest of humanity. So what he's saying is, if you're going to describe his humanity, you can't just describe the humanity without also describing the specialties and the uniqueness given to him. Because if you just focus on the human aspect and ignore these, the miraculous aspects, you're falling into exactly what the jahili mushrikun did in emphasizing the humanity at the expense of the nubuwa and the risala and the beautiful qualities, the unique things. So he gives examples for this. He says, looking at only their normal humanity, stripped of these other qualities, is a view of jahiliyyah, and there are numerous testimonies in the Qur'an for this. We have the statement of the people of Nuh alayhi salam concerning him. The chiefs of the disbelievers among his people said, we see you as naught but a man like ourselves. We only see you as a man like ourselves. Is Sayyidina Nuh a man? Absolutely. But when they're saying it, it's not to affirm a reality, because everyone knows he's a man. He knows he's a man. They know he's a man. Everyone knows he's a man. But when they say you're just a bashar, it's just you're just bashar. You have nothing special about you. Nothing that sets you apart from us. It's their way of rejecting any divine message coming to him. That's why they say, oh, you're just a bashar. Likewise, the people of Musa and Harun, right, the people of Fir'aun, right, they said to about Harun and Musa, shall we believe in two men like ourselves? And their people are obedient to us in subservience? Right, that's in Surah Mu'minun. So the people of Fir'aun said the same thing to Musa and Harun. Shall we obey people who are just like us? He says, likewise, the people of Thamud, they said to Prophet Salih, you are but a human being like us. So bring us a sign if you're truthful. So they use the humanity as a way of rejecting any specialness. Likewise, the people of Aika to uh, Prophet Shu'ib, they said, you're only one of those bewitched. You're a human being just like us. And we think you're one of the liars. And the people said, the people of Quraysh had the exact same thing to the Prophet ﷺ, who saw only the humanity. They only saw the Bashariya. And they said, what is with this messenger who eats food, يأكل الطعام, ويمشي في الأسواق, and he walks about in the marketplaces. Um, this is something that is shared by all of the people who rejected the messengers is that they would emphasize the Bashariya at the expense of the Risala. That's what he's saying. And then he goes on to give many, many hadith, which I won't go into here because he presents them in the book. So that's just the introduction to this section. Now if you go back to what he says, it makes more sense. He says, many believe that the prophets regarding their states bear resemblance to the rest of mankind and they share the general human traits with everyone else. And Allah instructed the noble prophet to say, I am only a man like you. This verse became the yardstick, which emphasized that prophets are mere human beings. Right? However, if one were to form this belief as their foundation, many problems arise. How are they significant? How are they distinct? 
Why did Allah choose them as leaders of mankind if they're just like us? What makes them special? If we're all equal, then why did they get picked and not us? Why are they special? So what is the, what is the correct understanding then of these verses where Allah Ta'ala says to the Prophet Sallallahu Say, I am but a man. قُلْ إِنَّمَا أَنَا بَشَرٌ مِثْلُكُمْ The answer is that we go back to our Aqidah lessons and we remember that Imam al-Sunusi, for instance, he mentions the extremes of the Christians who deified Jesus Christ. He mentions the extremes of the Yahud who ascribed all sorts of imperfections to the prophets and messengers. And then he mentions the Jahili Arabs who believed that Allah does not send prophets uh, unless they are angels. That was a belief among the Jahili Arabs. They didn't believe that Allah would send a messenger except that that messenger would be an angel. And that's why they marveled and found it strange that this messenger is يأكل طعام ويمشي في الأسواق eats food and walks around in the marketplace. And this is a belief that they had. So in order to emphasize that Allah sends human messengers, Allah has revealed to the Prophet ﷺ, say, I am a man like you. Not a man like you in terms of our, us being equal in our qualities, but I am a man like you and that we are from jinsul bashar. We're, from, we're all from the genus of human beings. And Allah sends prophets and messengers from the genus of human beings. Human, being, human beings as prophets to human beings. Not angels as prophets to human beings. Right? So the emphasis here is not an emphasis of the humanity aspect at the expense of the specialness. It is an emphasis of humanity to counter the belief that the prophets could only be angels and that it's not possible that prophets would be among men, uh, mortal men like ourselves. Right? So countering that belief, these verses are mentioned. So it's very interesting how we can see words expressed. Uh, a truthful statement can be used for falsehood. Right? When the khawarij during the reign of Sayyidina Ali would say, in الْحُكْمُ إِلَّا لِلَّهِ they said that judgment is only for Allah, reciting the verse of Qur'an. And Imam Ali said about them, he said, كَرِمَةُ حَقٍ أُرِيدُ بِهَا بَاطِلٍ They're uttering a true statement, but the intention behind it is falsehood. Because it's a true word. إِنَ الْحُكْمُ إِلَّا لِلَّهِ Judgment is only for Allah. But they are using that to cast people outside of the religion for tahkim, for arbitration, which is legislated by Allah Ta'ala. So they're using a true word, but it's with a false intention. So when a person says that the prophets are human beings, that's a truthful statement. But if they're using that in order to lower their status, to denigrate or at least minimize the unique qualities, then we say, just as Imam Ali said, كَرِمَةُ حَقٍ أُرِيدُ بِهَا بَاطِلٍ It's a true statement, but falsehood is intended by it. You're not, just <clears throat> you're not just affirming a basic fact. You're affirming that with the intention of minimizing something else. So we don't just say this. We also, we, we mention the humanity in connection with the khasais. The two go hand in hand. So that's what he's saying. And he then explores examples from the Khasais that show, yes, he is a human, but not like an ordinary human. Uh, as the poet said, Muhammadun Bashadun, la kal bashari, bal huwa kal yaquti bain al hajari. That Muhammad is a man, but not like any ordinary man. He is like a ruby in the midst of ordinary stones. Is a ruby a stone? Yes. Does that mean that the ruby is just like an ordinary stone? No. You could say here is a stone and here is a stone. Right? There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a line of poetry. I don't remember the whole 
all the abyat. But in, in Arabic, the, the poem said something like, don't, don't you see that you diminish the, the sword, you diminish the stature of the sword when you say that uh, the sword is as straight as a stick. It's like, if you say it's just like a stick in its straightness, it's like you're diminishing the sword. Like, why do you need to say that? Right, you're comparing something high to something low because they share in one thing, right? It's like someone comparing, someone, you know, spends hours in the kitchen cooking this sumptuous meal and someone eats it and says, yes, this will be good for animal fodder. Would the, would the animals like to eat it? Of course they would. But when you compare it to animal fodder, it's like you're diminishing it, right? Same thing here. So he begins by looking at uh, the prophets as leaders, and then he looks at characteristics. So the first one is general, and the second one is specific. He says, among mankind, the prophets have been selected by Allah and honored with the rank of prophethood. He has granted them wisdom, perceptive intellect, and penetrating awareness. Allah has chosen them to be intermediaries between Him and His creation, to inform them of His commands, warn them of His anger and punishment, and guide them upon the code of conduct that will lead them to happiness in this world and felicity, happiness, in the hereafter. Simple. Divine wisdom dictated that his intermediaries be selected from mankind so that people will assuredly be able to meet and communicate with them, receive from them, and emulate their conduct and character. Yeah, because if the prophets were angels, you now have an excuse. I can't be like them because I'm human and they're angels. So my, my shortcomings are justified. But if this is a human being with the human qualities, who's from Jinsul Bashar, and he, exists, he exhibits character and qualities that can be emulated, then there's no excuse in saying I can't emulate them. Because they're modeled in a human being who is a human like you, insofar as you're both from Jinsul Bashar. So, their simple human traits are the essence of their miracle. Right? That's what Sheikh Muhammad Ali Wid Maliki said too. He says that their human traits are the essence of their miracle. Meaning, despite being from the race of humanity, they are distinguished with inimitable qualities. Yani qualities that can't be emulated. Right? Meaning gifts Allah gave them that can't be uh, acquired through effort. He says, therefore, if we erase their distinction and view them as mere humans, it dismantles the authenticity of the divine call. Allah has demonstrated this in many verses of the Qur'an. In Surah Hud, this is illustrated through the dialogue between Prophet Nuh and his people. Ah, it's here too. <laughs> so I wasn't, I wasn't thinking he cited it here, but he cites it here too. Exactly what Shaykh Muhammad Ali said. Uh, where Prophet Nuh said to his people, So the group from his people which had disbelieved said, We do not see you except as a man like us. Another example is illustrated in the statements made by the people among Prophet Musa and Harun. <laughs> the same verse. They said, will you, will you believe in two men who are like us? And they perform worship as we do. Furthermore, the people of Thamud said to their Prophet, You are nothing but a man like us. Therefore, bring a sign if you are truthful. The people of Aika said to Prophet Shuraib, you're only magicians, you are nothing but a man like us, and we consider you to be from the liars. Such comments were also hurled at our master, the Messenger of Allah They said, what is with this Messenger? He eats food and walks in the market. It's almost, almost a quote. 
Meaning this is the same set of verses in the same, the same order that Shaykh Muhammad Ali recites. So the point of this section is that they are human beings, but they are selected with gifts, uniquities. Uh, uniquities here means khasais, uh, uh, things that are unique and that no one else shares. And this distinguishes them. And if you erase the things that distinguish them, then basically, as he says here, it dismantles the authenticity of the divine call because it is through the unique qualities that Allah establishes their superiority and their truthfulness by which they communicate the, the message itself. So it's very important to understand this. Now the next one, the next section is about the characteristics. This begins by something general for all of the prophets, and then it goes into the specifics of the uniquities, the khasais of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. The prophets of Allah would perform the general acts that are practiced by mankind. They would eat, drink, experience good health and illness, marry women, and walk in the markets. They experience the phases of life as experienced by all others, such as weakness, old age, and death. However, they are distinguished, exalted, and unlike the general people by their unique attributes. A prophet cannot merit the rank of prophethood unless he possesses the following attributes. Truthfulness, sidq, conveying the message, tabligh, Security, amana, that means protection from sin. Intelligence, fatana. Absolute purity from abhorrent faults. And infallibility, usma. These attributes have been summarized. Further information and detail on this topic can be found in the books of Tawheed, the books of Aqidah. We will, however, mention some of the attributes that distinguish the prophets from the rest of mankind by focusing on the master of all prophets, Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So there's two main points he's mentioning in this little section, that as we mentioned in the Aqidah class, all of the prophets and messengers, uh, are. it is possible for them to be subjected to normal human qualities, new, normal human experiences. And this does not detract from their message. Um, and they have these certain qualities that are required of them and by definition, a prophet has to have these qualities of truthfulness, conveying the message, protection from sin and error, uh, purity, sagacity, intelligence, and so on. So now he wants to highlight how the Prophet ﷺ was distinct from others in so many different ways. But these distinctions are connected to the Shema'il, as we'll see. So in the Shema'il, we learn about the height of the Prophet ﷺ, don't we? Where it mentions that he was neither exceedingly tall nor short. He was uh, He was in between the average height of his people. But when he was among the people, he would always appear to be a little bit taller. But not in an excessive way. So that is a part of the Shema'il because it's describing his physical quality but it also links to something unique to him, which is this appearance of him being taller among people, even though he's not actually taller than them, but only when he was among the group, he would appear to the eyes of people taller than the rest. So he mentions these narrations. Uh, Ibn Khuzayma has related in his tarikh, as well as Al-Bayhaqi and Ibn Asakir, on the authority of Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha who said, The Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa was not too tall nor too short, but he was of average height. When he walked with people of average height, he was taller than them. At times when two people walked beside him, he would normally be described as tall. Who, who would normally be described as tall? He would be taller than both. But once they left, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, would appear of average height, meaning by himself. Uh, there's a few narrations like this. 
Uh, he mentions another one here from Ibn Saba' who has who's the author of a 12 volume work on khasa'is and this has been uh, adapted and subsumed into other works uh, in the latter period Ibn Saba' has mentioned in his khasa'is uh, he adds further that when the messenger of Allah sallallahu would sit his shoulders were higher than all others seated in his company so again he's appearing taller whether standing or sitting. Because if he's sitting, and everyone is sitting, the, tallest, the taller the person, the higher their shoulders will be relative to others. So his actual height was not exceedingly tall, nor was it very short or short. It was of average height relative to the average height of his people in that time. However, when he was with people walking or standing or sitting when he was with a group he would appear in the eyes of others as being taller what's going on here he's not shape-shifting you have to understand he's not changing size he remains the same height but in the eyes of the people he, uh, he appears this way this is the magnetism that, uh, of the Prophet and the way in which people saw him in such awe that he's made to appear this way when he is with others. He appears taller than them. But when he's seen alone, he appears in his normal height because he stands alone. But when he's with others, no one towers over him in the same way. Even if someone is actually taller than him, like Sayyidina Umar is taller than him. Even if someone was taller than him, when they were in a group, it would not appear that anyone is towering over him. And that is what Allah put in the hearts of people by which they perceived his rank. So he is moderate in the height. So the meaning of moderation is conveyed. But when with others, his excellence is emphasized as well, his superiority. And this is in the form of how they perceived him around others as being taller. So the next section, I want to get to this, the eyesight. I don't know if you will. Uh, but the next section is about the blessed face of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa The Shaykh says, it is related from Sayyidah Aisha radiallahu anha who said, I borrowed a needle from Hafsa bint Rawaha which I would use to sew, sew the thawb of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, and his qamis. Once the needle fell from my hand and I tried to look for it, but I could not find it. There's no electricity. There's, maybe there's a lantern. But imagine a small house made out of brick and mud. The ground is made of sand and dirt and gravel. Maybe there's a lantern inside, but that's it. And a needle is dropped. What are the chances of finding it? Very little. But you see, these things were hard to come by. Needles were valuable. They didn't have a manufacturing base to manufacture these odds and ends. So dropping the needle, she has to find it. It's very important. She says, I tried to look for it, but I couldn't find it. All of a sudden, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, walked in and I could see the needle from the light of his face. I laughed. And so the Prophet وسلم, asked, O oh, Humaira, what is it that makes you laugh? I told him what had just happened and then he called out at the top of his voice, Ya Aisha. Woe to the one, and then woe to the one, and then woe to the one. Al-wail, thumma al-wail, thumma al-wail, who is deprived of gazing at this face. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa barak alayhi wa alayhi This is recorded by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad, and Ibn Hibban in his Sahih. So this is a very powerful hadith. And you have to understand this hadith and others in the appropriate context. 
the Prophet Sallallahu was is munawwar, he's, he's luminous. And that luminosity is literal and figurative. But that luminosity is visible for those who have the sensitivity to perceive it because they have iman in their hearts. When a person has iman, they see what others don't see. They perceive beauty, they perceive excellence in subtle ways that others might not because they lack that sensitivity. So this is how you understand this hadith. He walks in and she's able to find the needle. She sees it because of the, the luminosity of his blessed face sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So this is shama'il and khasais. This is something unique to him. The shaykh mentions here some commentary by uh, Dr. Mahmoud Subayh. Uh, Dr. Mahmoud Subayh is an Egyptian scholar. He's not very well known, but he's written a number of works on the Shama'il and Khasa'is, trying to, you know, drawing out these meanings and reflecting on them. So he spoke about this hadith, and he said the heart of Sayyidah Aisha was only occupied with the love of Allah and His Messenger وسلم, and nothing else. For this reason, Sayyidah Aisha would feel the presence of the Messenger of Allah وسلم, even before he entered. She was always in search of him, which led her to missing him. Such examples have been related in many hadith. Among them is when she went in search for him on the night of the 15th, on the night of the 15th of Sha'ban. This is a very famous hadith. When, on the 15th of Sha'aban, he got up and left the house at night and he went out to Al-Baqi'ah and Sayyidah Aisha was worried about him, what's going on. And actually it wasn't Baqi'ah, it was a, like an orchard uh, near. And she goes out and search for him and finds him. Right. So he's look, she's looking for him because of this worry for him. And then he, he, she hears the hadith about the virtues of the 15th of Sha'aban. He says, at times she would drop what was in her hand when she felt his presence. She dreaded the day in which she would not feel the Messenger of Allah وسلم, fearing a veil. Yani the veil of yani passing into the barzakh. Uh, the Prophet وسلم, would make her feel his presence at times. And at times he would not. For there is nothing that can stop the majesty, the haybah, the awe of the Prophet The needle fell from her hands when she felt the presence of the Messenger of Allah because she was never occupied with anything other than our Master, the Messenger of Allah She feared lest he would be hurt by the needle. So this is a kind of interpretation to the hadith. Right? So this is... Like obviously she's not saying that herself. This is not this is not mantuq al-kalam. It's not uttered by Sayyidah Aisha. She's not saying these were the feelings and that's why I dropped the needle. She's just saying I dropped the needle and he came in and I found it. So some of the mashayikh, they try to read between the lines. And they say, okay, it's not mantuq, it's not articulated verbally. But there's a mafhum behind this hadith. Is it possible she just fumbled and dropped it? Of course. But as someone of such a high status as Sayyidah Aisha, they're saying she was occupied by thoughts of him. And it's as if she was sensitive to his presence. And sensing his presence coming into the house, that's what caused her to fumble and drop the needle. But because she was worried about him stepping on it, she's looking for it, like, where can it be? I don't want him to step on it. But then when he walks in, the luminosity of his face is such that she's able to find the area where the needle is and pick it up. This is a kind of, it's a kind of tafsir behind the hadith, right? This is what some mashayikh they offer. You know, a person is free to accept or reject that. It's not articulated in the hadith. But it is the explanation given by some due to the station of Sayyidah Aisha and her position, and her rank, you know, in her, her closeness to Allah and His Messenger
The Prophet ﷺ was compared to the full moon on a dark night. Whenever he was in a dark place, the companions could see him because of his luminous face. The rays of light that Sayyidina Aisha saw emanating from his face resembled the rays of light from the sun. Hence the light reflected off the needle by which it shone and she related this to the Prophet ﷺ. However, the response of the Prophet ﷺ has another reference. He said, Woe to the one who is deprived of gazing at my face. Meaning that the vision through the light of the noble face is a state from the, among the states which will lead to ascension and salvation. And to see the Prophet ﷺ with the gaze of Iman in this life or in a dream is a means of salvation. Right? Because the Prophet ﷺ says in the hadith recorded by Imam Tirmidhi in the Shema'il that whoever sees me in, in, in this life in, in the dream will see me then on the day of judgment. Right? And this means in a good state. So one of the blessings of beholding the Prophet ﷺ in a dream is that it becomes a kind of glad tidings that the person will ultimately, inshallah, be from Ahlul Jannah. Doesn't necessarily mean they won't be without trial and tribulation. Doesn't mean they're flawless or perfect. But it means it is a bushra, it is a glad tiding of goodness, of, of salvation ultimately. So our master, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, indicated to Sayyidina Aisha, you've seen the rays, so where is the face? And there's a difference between the lights of the essence and the light which emerges from him. وسلم. So he's speaking in a very high language here, a very high language. And the point this all goes back to is seeing the Prophet ﷺ through the eye of Iman. To see him, through the, uh, to gaze upon him with the eye of faith. Because you think about it, the Quraysh, they saw him. Abu Lahab saw him, Abu Jahl saw him. The Sanadid al-Quraysh, all these leaders, they saw him. And the regular people, they saw him. But they're seeing him through the lenses not of Iman but of Kufr. So all they see is Yatimu Quraysh, the orphan boy of Quraysh. They don't see Rasulullah, Nabiullah. They don't see him as he truly is. Right? And then he cites a verse Watarahum Yanduruna Ireka Wahum La Yubusirun. So this verse in Surah Al-A'raf, the context of the verse is not with regards to the Prophet wasallam, but the umum al-laf, like the general expression, uh, describes this meaning, you know, of you, of you see them looking at you, but they don't see you truly, right? They, they look at him and all they see is the orphan boy of Quraysh. They don't see Rasulullah wasallam. So the witnessing or the beholding is not just with the eyes. It is the eyes with Iman, right? Or seeing him in the dream uh, with Iman in him. He says, there are many who are deprived of witnessing the noble prophetic form. Their vision may only occur after the resurrection. Not every member of the Prophet's community will see him in a dream or at the time of death or upon burial. If the lights of our Master, the Messenger of Allah وسلم, were to be revealed to the people, many of them would be pulled towards him. For the face of the Prophet وسلم, is the focal point of the continual gazes of Allah. What he's saying is that the believer will ultimately get to see him. Right? But it may not be in a dream. It may be on the Day of Judgment. Or it may not be until the very end of their life. As they're nearing the end of this life, they may have a dream, a vision of the Prophet ﷺ. At either rate, it's not something that you can force. You can't force a dream, you know. You can't go to sleep at night saying, tonight I'm going to have the dream. And if you just think about it enough, you're just going to have the dream. It's not how it works. 
if you talk to most people who had dreams of the Prophet ﷺ, most of them will say that the, the nights where they saw him in the dream were nights where they weren't even thinking about the dream. Whereas on the nights where they're you know, making dua, asking Allah for the dream, they don't get the dream. But on the night where they don't make the dua, and maybe even they're not in the best of states, maybe they're sad, Maybe they're going through something. They're not even thinking about it. But that's the night they have the dream. Because you don't, you don't bring him into the dream by your own force. Allah honors you to behold him in a dream. And you have that dream. right? It's not acquired through your individual efforts. Nevertheless, the scholars say, one of the means of making yourself receptive to the dreams is to send lots of salawat. Not that the salawat are going to be the magic formula that by number 77 you have the code and now he comes. But that by doing the salawat it increases you in longing and desire and with that, bithnillah, Allah honors you with a dream. But sometimes it may be later on in someone's life. The great uh, Imam Al-Hakim Al-Tirmidhi, the great hadith scholar, he didn't have a dream of the Prophet wasallam until he was in his late 70s even though he spent his whole life compiling the hadith and speaking about the Prophet ﷺ and asking for the dream, it wasn't until he was in his late 70s that he had a dream. So it is what it is. So one just makes themselves prepared and asks Allah for it. And he says here that he is the, uh, the face of the Prophet ﷺ is the focal point of the continual gazes of Allah. Meaning, Allah's rahmah, Allah's mercy, Allah's inayah, His solicitude and care, His lutf, right? Allah is continually, this is what we mean by nadarat, by gazes, meaning gazes of mercy, of concern, of uh, bestowing graces and honors and elevation. Uh, so the one who is closely connected with the Prophet ﷺ, receives a share of that. Because you know, he is the uh, focal point of those nadarat. He says the noble face of the Prophet ﷺ is constantly radiant with the lights of Allah's gazes. He, who never ceases to send blessings upon him wasallam. Therefore, one who gazes at the face of the Prophet وسلم, gazes, gains ascension through the divine lights. So, as I said probably in the first or second lesson in this book, this is not a didactic text, meaning it's not a kind of text that you unpack line for line as you would in a very technical kind of book, like a book of theology or fiqh. It is an open expression of love, so we read it and we offer some commentary when it's suitable. But what he's pointing at here so far is the uniqueness of the blessed face of the Prophet ﷺ. Not just the description of the face, but also some of the unique aspects of the face as we see particularly in the hadith of Sayyidah Aisha in how she was able to see the needle in the room when he walked in. So if that is what she gained from him walking in, what about the person whom Allah blesses to gaze at his face in a dream or to gaze upon his face on the day of judgment or to be in his company in Jannah, right? For a person to receive that is a tremendous honor. And that honor is, as we said about dreams, is not something you can force. You have to ask Allah for it and Allah gives to whomever he wills. But that's his uniqueness with regards to his blessed face, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Now I think we'll probably finish the first or second page of this third section. Um, and this is on the eyes, the uniqueness of the blessed eyes of the noble prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So he begins by citing the verse in Surah Al-Najm, where Allah Ta'ala says, مَا زَاغَ الْبَصَرُ وَمَا طَغَى His sight never swerved, nor did it go wrong. 
or we could translate this as his sight never swerved nor did it transgress now does anyone know what was the context of that verse there's a, there's a particular context for this well they say the Isra is mentioned in Surah Isra and the Mi'raj is mentioned in Surah Najm yeah so this is the Mi'raj through the seven heavens so Surah the Isra is the nocturnal journey from Al-Masjid Al-Haram to Al-Aqsa right so that is the uh, the horizontal journey this took place or this is referred to in Surah Al-Isra Subhanalladhi Asra Bi'abdihi the Mi'raj is not mentioned by by name unlike the Isra but it is alluded to in Surah Al-Najm so Surah Al-Najm is talking about the Mi'raj and in the Mi'raj Allah Ta'ala says about the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam مَا زَاغَ الْبَصَرُ وَمَا طَغَى His sight never swerved nor did it go wrong now but here's the question and, and this is the reason why he puts the verse here does that meaning only apply to the Mi'raj? Think about it. The, would, if you, we say yes, the verse is in the context of the Mi'raj. So in the Mi'raj, his sight never swerved or transgressed. He saw exactly what Allah showed him, and, he's not, and he saw exactly what Allah showed him, and he was able to withstand that. So it didn't swerve or transgress. He was able to take in the sights that Allah showed him. But does that meaning only apply to the Mi'raj? It applies also in dunya. That whatever Allah showed him of the unseen, he could withstand it. Allah strengthened his heart to withstand the visions of the unseen that he showed him in this world, as well as in the Isra and in the Mi'raj. So that's why he mentions it here. He says Ibn Adi Al-Bayhaqi and Ibn Asakir have all related from Sayyidah Aisha who said anha, the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa alihi wa sallam used to see in the dark just as he used to see in the light. There's a lot of hadith about the eyesight. Uh, Bayhaqi has related from Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, used to see during the darkness of the night just as he would see during daylight. Bukhari and Muslim have both related that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, said, Do you look at this qibla of mine? I swear by Allah, your bowing or prostrating are not hidden from me. I certainly see you from behind me. So, this actually forms the bulk of the hadith about the eyesight is that there are several hadith which talk about the eyesight of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam seeing at night like he would see at day seeing further than the strongest of human eyes could see so he could see certain constellations that people couldn't see and also seeing behind him as he would see up in front 